Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome and thank you for joining us for the fourth in a series of four CMEO snacks titled Reinforcing Personalized Care for Uterine Fibroids, Updating Practices to Improve Outcome. The CMEO snack series is supported by an independent medical education grant from Pfizer. I'm Dr. Ayman Al-Hindi. I'm a professor and vice chair for research at the Department of Statistics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago. I'm also a gynecologist and minimally invasive surgeon at the University of Chicago Medical Center. Our research program uh, focuses on health disparity in uterine fibroids, and uh, our program has been funded by the NIH continuously since 2002. Uh, I'm really happy uh, to be joined today by two distinguished colleagues. Uh, Ms. Nisha McKenzie, could you please start by introducing yourself to the audience? Thank you. My name is Nisha McKenzie. I'm a physician assistant in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I have worked in both primary care and uh, OBGYN over the past 21 years, and then in June of 2022, 2020, I opened up a multi-specialty medical center of my own to focus on pelvic health, sexual health, pelvic pain disorders, sexual pain disorders, gynecology, mental health, <clears throat> kind of an all-inclusive type, type practice. So my background is in mainly gynecology and sexual health. Excellent. Welcome. I'm also pleased to be joined today by Ms. Danica uh, Gray-Velbrun. Uh, Ms. Velbrun, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, good afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Al-Hindi. So happy and pleased to be here, always to have this conversation. Um, my name is Tanika Gray-Valbrun. I am the founder of the White Dress Project. We are a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to raising awareness of uterine fibroids. And uh, we are all across the country really creating a supportive group for people who are managing life with fibroids. So it's great to be here and great to have this discussion. Excellent. Welcome. So to open the discussion today, let's let me review our learning objective: utilizing shared decision making to develop patient-centered treatment plans for patients with uterine fibroids. I think it's really important we start by uh, the discussion by considering the patient experience when they are offered treatment for uterine fibroids. So I'll start with you, Ms. Velpran, as a patient advocate. Um, do you have any insight to share here on the personal experience patients have during the treatment planning process? Yeah, so I think that's a, a wonderful way to start the discussion. Um, I want to note that during the treatment planning process, it's always um, very overwhelming um, for patients to hear about uterine fibroids, to hear um, about potentially, you know, quite a few treatment options, um, grieving what you potentially thought your life would be, not knowing how to make a decision, all of it um, can be overwhelming for the patient, um, especially when they're hearing a lot of these things for the first time, uh, possibly not having spoken to any family or friends about it. It can be an extremely overwhelming process. Um, so when you think about treatment and planning for the process and planning to figure out, you know, what are the best treatment options, um, there's a host of 
things that go into it. For example, emotional impact, um, thinking about a diagnosis and being just triggered by anxiety and, and fear and confusion, not knowing what to do. You also have um, information overload. Um, a lot of times, you know, I say that I'm the CEO of my body and that, you know, I want to partner with physicians to ensure that we're coming up with the best outcomes. But a lot of times, it's just a lot of information. And a lot of times, we don't know the terminology, the clinical lingo, and often become overwhelmed by that. Other times we have just personal preferences. Um, you know, what are we thinking about um, that we wanted for our lives or our families and, and culturally what we've been taught? Um, sometimes not having a support system goes into how we make decisions for treatment options. So I just wanted to highlight just a few of the things that as a patient, um, we are experiencing when we hear um, a fibroid diagnosis. And when we think about how we need to make this decision, we have all of these things to consider, uh, uh, personal preferences, what we're thinking about and feeling emotionally, the information that we're getting that we may not be um, privy to, or we may just not have knowledge of. So all of it can be overwhelming and emotionally taxing. Absolutely. I totally agree. So thanks for this insight. And as a, you know, a minimum invasive surgeon and gynecologist uh, since 1995, so that's what, uh, 28 years. Uh, I, I really uh, was, was at the beginning, at least, uh, kind of disappointed uh, during my training. Uh, you know, I, I would have to say, but this kind of uh, monologue that happens once the word fibroid comes up, once the diagnosis of fibroids confirmed, almost immediately the next word is surgery, and usually in the form of hysterectomy. Uh, no alternative, no options, uh, no dialogue. It's really like a monologue. The doctor, the surgeon is talking hysterectomy, and then he or she goes on talking about, you know, okay, this is, you know, how hysterectomy works. Uh, this is what can go wrong. And then, you know, sign here. This is the consent form. And my office will contact you with the day of the surgery. That's it. I think that's extremely overwhelming, as you said. And and even if that was justified 28 years ago, which wasn't really, uh, especially now when we have several uh, non-surgical alternatives and many other options for for our patients with fibroid, which will cover some of that in the next few minutes, uh, that's really unacceptable, this kind of uh, one option monologue approach. So so I agree with you 100%. Uh, patients certainly may have fears or concern when entering the treatment planning process, which is why a shared decision-making model where providers and patients talk as a team, walk through the options and opt for decisions based on the patient preference could be considered. So I'll, I'll go to you now, Ms. McKinsey, and um, uh, could you please talk about, from your clinical experience, the importance of SDM shared decision-making during treatment planning for patients with uterine fibroids? Yes, absolutely. So I think the importance of shared decision-making is, is we want to, like uh, Ms. Gray said, we would like to collaborate with our, our patients. <clears throat> we want to partner with them. And if we go in with a proscriptive type approach of like 
here's your education, here's your option sign here, kind of like you said, Dr. Alhandi, then, then it does feel overwhelming and it feels overwhelming anyway. So one of the things that I think is really important is just checking in with our patients on a regular basis and saying, can you kind of tell me in your words what you heard from me? there and what questions do you have and how does this sit with you or what do you, what do you understand about what I told you or you know just checking in like that can make all a world of difference and that can help with increasing compliance which obviously helps with outcome measures as well right and success of whatever whatever measure we're trying to help implement for our patients and even if we can't implement something so I'm not a surgeon right so I can't say I can do surgery for you to my patients but it still should be something that's on the option list, right? Here are, here's the differential of what's happening, all the different options for what might be your diagnosis. And then once we narrow down the diagnosis, here are all of the options that you could entertain. And you can give a brief overview. And I usually tell people, I'm gonna give you a brief overview of a lot. And then I wanna kind of hone in on what seems to resonate with you. So if you can give that brief overview, and then you can just do active listening to see what they are what they are taking in. And you can tell with body language, if they stiffen a little bit, if you say something, they go like this, you know, you can kind of make a note of that and then come back to it and say, okay, I felt like maybe I sent some uh, apprehension about this type of approach. And do you want to speak to that? And, you know, and then usually there's a story, my mom had this or my aunt had this happen. And that's, you know, I'm fearful of that. And so we can kind of delve more into those topics. But if we do do this like proscriptive, just tell you what to do, it's scary and that you don't tend to have as good of, of uh, experience. Um, it tends to feel more traumatic for them. So that shared decision, decision making is, is makes all the difference in their outcomes. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So utilizing this patient-centered approach can uh, certainly be helpful as provider work with patients and help them through the process of evaluating risk versus benefit of treatments, considering effectiveness of treatment offered, et cetera. So as a reminder, if the audience is interested in more information on the available treatment options, looking at those two programs from this series. First one is guiding the clinical management of uterine fibroids. And the second one is the HPO, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, and the estrogen threshold hypothesis, paving the way for novel treatment. Both describe available treatment options and the risk versus benefit more in depth. I would encourage the audience to access those programs if they want. Um, also, when approaching patients during treatment planning, I think one way to improve communication and alleviate fear and concern is by transparent conversations and discussion about physical concern. So I'll stay with you, Ms. McKenzie. Uh, can you talk to the audience about discussing patient physical fears and concern while utilizing tools like decision aids in this process? Absolutely. The The physical concerns tend to be, I mean, those, I would say the, the simple part on our, our part as providers is asking them, just simply asking them, what, again, what did you hear from, you know, the conversation we just had and what are your apprehensions? And I usually use words like that, like what are your apprehensions versus what do you feel anxious about? Because there is a little bit still of a stigma around anxiety and some people don't want to be dubbed with feeling anxious about something. And so we've all got roadblocks or apprehensions to any particular um, recommendation. So I'll just ask them, what are your apprehensions? What are you feeling um, more fearful of? And and then, then they will have the conversation about, okay, when I have this surgery and I have this scar here or... 
or perhaps when I have surgery and I have to have a hysterectomy, what does that mean for my fertility? But just asking them what their apprehensions are and then empowering them with knowledge. This is where the knowledge is power um, statement comes into such play, right? Because if we can give them all of the knowledge that they need to make their decision, regardless of what we might make for ourselves or for someone that, you know, like if I have a daughter that might be going through this, right? Like they are going to still want to make their own decisions. We are just here to empower them with the knowledge. And if we can sit back with our own ideas on what we think about how many children they may or may not have had and what they might want and just actively listen to what they want, then we can give them a much better experience. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. And, and I love what you said about like they make the decision after we give them the information. And, and I might have said that uh, before in this series in a different recording, but I, I tell them I am I am your uh, technician. I, uh, I'm, I'm your doctor to give you answers to your questions, but you really uh, uh, are the one who have to make the decision because you are the one who knows, as as uh, Ms. Velperin said, you are the CEO. I, I'm going to start using that expression. You are the CEO of your body. You know your situation. You know your family situation. Uh, obviously, you know your experiences uh, a lot more than me, what happened maybe in a family member, your mother, your older sister who had a similar situation. I, I don't know all of that. Uh, uh, so, so I give you the information, I answer your questions, but then you really make the choice uh, at the end. Uh, so I, I love that approach. Um, so when approaching patients during treatment planning, I think providers can truly validate a patient experience if they address concern regarding pain. So uh, Ms. Valperan, uh, do you have any insight to share here as patient advocate in this specific topic? Yes, specifically about pain. Um, you know, I just want to reiterate just really quickly what Ms. McKenzie said about empowering patients. Um, I really think that is a, a powerful um, point to make because I feel like if physicians recognize that if they empower their patient and really um, look at their patient as a partner within the decision-making process, very much what we're talking about with shared decision-making, um, then you you help your patient come to um, a decision that they feel empowered that they've made. They feel that they've been a part of the decision making. They don't feel like someone in the white coat has told them what to do and taken away their power. So I think it's it's very critical for us to make sure that when we are talking to patients, that we are sharing exactly all of the information. I also loved um, when she mentioned that, you know, she may not personally be able to perform something, a surgery, a procedure, whatever, um, but that does not mean that it should be eliminated from the table and you should not have that discussion with your patient. Um, anytime we hear, and we hear it so much in our community, that hysterectomy was the only thing I was offered. Myomectomy was the only thing I was offered. And thank goodness we've come so far that there are a host of other treatment options um, from surgical to non-surgical that patients can you know, take advantage of. Now, whether or not the physician is the one to do said procedures, you know, is is up for discussion, um, but we should make sure that we're sharing all of the treatment options. So I just wanted to reiterate that. When it comes on to pain, 
we also have to think about not dismissing uh, patients' pain. We hear so much in our community, and I've had this happen personally to me, where physicians will say, you know, Tanika, it's, the pain isn't really that bad. Um, and and it, it sounds jarring, you know, when I'm speaking to clinicians who wouldn't dare say anything like that, um, but it's it's happening and it's real. There's a disproportionate amount of uh, Black women that it's happening to, um, and, and really just women. Um, with, you know, the literature shows the dismissal and the disproportionate impact that's happening. Um, so we really need to address, I love, um, Dr. Alhendi, correct me if I'm wrong, but the new guidelines that ACOG has come out with regarding normal and pain and what you're feeling. And if, if something is impacting your quality of life, then it is something that you need to raise your hand about. And it's, it's a concern that you need to share. And I always believe that if, if, if you're sharing these concerns, then a doctor, whether there is a particular treatment option at the time or not, should take those concerns um, in, into consideration. I also think that physicians need to think about other ways that they can converse with their their patients. We talk talk about cultural competency a lot. We talked about uh, way, ways people learn. And I had this experience uh, one time in a physician's office where she asked me to draw how I was feeling or just to write down, um, you know, we call it word vomit in journalism, but just to write down just what are the words that are coming to your mind as we try to describe what you're feeling? Um, you know, uh, physicians often talk about the lack of time that they have, um, and we know that to be true. You, we, we all face that. Um, but the, utilizing other tools like drawing, like writing really quickly what you're feeling, um, sometimes can be beneficial and really get to some of the data and, and some of the lived experiences that oftentimes patients can't verbalize. Absolutely, absolutely. I love what the, all the issues you covered, uh, Ms. Velperin. And, and back to your point, you're absolutely right. ACOG, the American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists, FIGO, which is the International Federation of OBGYN, all came uh, in the last few years saying, the patient acts as a control to herself. If the patient comes and say, my period is now heavier, you really don't need to quantify this 80 mL per, per cycle thing, which is like six um, tablespoonful. Who does that? I mean, nobody measured that way. If she feels her period is, is heavier, then it's heavier. If she feels she's having new pain, uh, new pelvic pain, then she has, because she's comparing this uh, to herself before. And, and yeah, everybody's going that direction. I love also what you uh, covered uh, about the health disparity angle of all of this, uh, because you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, there's still that uh, misconception out there that certain ethnic groups, uh, maybe the pain perception might be different, which is totally uh, not correct. And that sometimes cloud the, uh, the healthcare provider assessment and decisions and so on. So thank you for sharing all of that. So I'll go to you now, Ms. McKinsey. Um, what do you feel clinician should be aware when treatment planning with patient and addressing uh, pain and related symptoms as well? 
I think hearkening back to what was said already, that that pain is something that we may not be able to quantify, and that's okay. And that's really difficult, I think, for people in the medical world because we're so black and white, right? It's like two plus two is four. We've got data here and data here. And so to not be able to quantify something um, leaves us feeling a little uneasy sometimes. But like you said, Dr. Hendy, if we can just believe our patients, just say to them, are you in pain? And if they say yes, then we don't have to do anything further than go check that they're in pain. We need to do something about it. And like you said, there is there's so many people who are marginalized in healthcare, and and this is um, women, this is Black women, BIPOC community, those in the LGBTQ and sex or gender um, variations. There's so many people that are just not listened to, <clears throat> and that oftentimes I think pain might be attributed to a psycho psychosomatic disorder or something like that. And so pe- these people, by the time they're getting to us, they've already heard that their pain isn't that bad, right? That they're, they've they been told this, that your periods are supposed to be painful. Oh, missing work or missing school once or twice a month, that's normal, right? Like they've already heard all these things. And so if we can just validate and say, you're in pain, that's not okay. And I'm telling you almost every time you say that to someone, they'll start crying because nobody's told them that they believe them, that that their pain is too much. <clears throat> and as soon as you can validate what's happening, their guards come down and they will start to listen in a different way, hear you in a different way, and you can actively listen. I know we mentioned time constraints, but it really doesn't take any extra time to be an active listener versus listening and trying to figure out like, are we going to get out of this room in time and my next patient? And, you know, there's, there's 6,000 things always going on in your head about all the patients you're seeing in a day. But if you can actively listen for the same amount of time you would have been in that room anyway, you're going to get much more uh, bang for your buck, I suppose. Like you're going to get so much more out of that visit and so is your patient. And like was said too, I always tell my patients, you're the expert in your body. I love what you said that you're there, the CEO. So I always have told them, you're the expert in your body. I have some random like medical knowledge and research and data and all this up here, but it's useless without you telling me your story and without me hearing it. So if I can pair that, can pair that, sorry, with what you have going on, then as those pair, then we can figure out as a team how to move forward. But the pain part is just important, I think, just to listen to and believe them. We shouldn't have to make them feel like they have to prove their pain. Absolutely. I, I love what you said about uh, validating validating the patient uh, complaints or symptoms and, and staying on that topic. So when, when talking about validating a patient pain, I think it's closely aligned with the importance of validating the patient experience by discussing the patient's psychological and mental health concerns as well. Uh, Etc. So I'll, I'll go to you now, uh, Ms. Velperin. Do you have any insight on that topic from from the uh, patient side, from the patient advocacy side? Oh, absolutely. Um, at the White Dress Project, you know, we're always thinking about how we can include um, the mental health discussion uh, in this health journey discussion um, because it's one that is not separate. Um, and, and sometimes we have tried to separate it, um, especially you can feel that when you're in a clinician's office that, that we're just dealing with, um, the physical portion of this, but there's something to be said, um, ex- for example, with symptoms of fibroids, when you are bleeding for multiple days in a row, what does that do to your psyche? What does that do to your social life? 
What does that do for, uh, for your career building, your family building? And that has an emotional impact. I have personally uh, been through this with, with two myomectomies. Um, I just uh, scheduled a surgery today um, for the end of this month. Um, so when I think about all of that, when I think about time that I'm now going to have to be down again, um, it's, it's heart wrenching to me because it's not what I planned, um, for life outside of, you know, being social. It's just not what I planned for my body. This is not, um, where I thought I would be. And I think when when you're in the midst of having to make all of these uh, decisions around your health, we have to consider um, validating the patient's mental health and and feeling down and not wanting to have another surgery, not wanting to get on birth control again, not wanting to have another hysteroscopy, you know, whatever it is, I don't want to do it. Um, and I think those feelings are valid. And, and I'm not suggesting here that, that every clinician should now, you know, become a mental health professional. But I do think that, uh, as Ms. McKenzie said, active listening and really recognizing potentially what our, our patients could be going through, um, is important. And I always ask clinicians to just think if this were your sister. If this were your mom, if this were your cousin, what would you be telling her and how would you want her to be treated? And thinking that when you're delivering this information, it is a matter of the heart. And we, while the, there's a lot of science and there's a lot of literature and a lot of uh, data, we have to know that we are still and always will be dealing with human beings. Um, and the, the, the mind and mental health component cannot be separated from what's happening uh, physically. Absolutely. And, and I hope everything goes well uh, with you, Ms. Valgren, for, for your next procedure. Uh, th this is a difficult disease. I mean, like, I, I, you know, and, and, I, and I'm sure and I hope our audience really appreciate that. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk a lot about uh, prevention uh whether it's primary secondary but then if that's missed or it's too late for that then we really should start with simple things like all the new fda approved medical therapy and surgery should be the last resort like like really any other disease unfortunately in fibroids um at least some years ago when there was no other option surgery became entrenched as fibroid equal surgery immediately that paradigm really ha has to change with this new available treatment and this uh, whole uh, kind of uh, holistic approach that you and Ms. McKinsey was talking about. So back to you, uh, Ms. McKinsey, as a clinician, how do you feel providers can improve treatment planning and addressing concerns for the patient? Yeah, I think that um, echoing what Ms. Balbrin had said about the mental health aspect, I think that's such an important thing to, to address and to address carefully. Because, again, so many of these people have heard for so long that it's all in their head or that they're making it up or, you know, some other version of invalidation that that gets blamed on mental health. And so oftentimes I will talk to people about the pain, um, the mental health pain cycle and how that's 
how the pain affects how we process and how we respond to stimuli from the world and to that pain. And so, um, and, and I'll usually just have a very frank conversation saying, I know that in the past you may have heard that this is in your head and I don't want, I don't want you to hear that from me. So, but understanding that there are neural pathways that get created when we're in a pain cycle for so long, how can we adjust those neural pathways? And so I have the, the, the um, luck to be able to practice with eight therapists and a psychiatry psychiatry provider and to work in collaboration with all of them in my clinic. I know not everybody has that opportunity, but, but even just to have a referral source and say, I have people that you can talk to about how this is affecting your life. You know, we can understand our limitations as medical providers that we may not have the time to spend with them to, to allow them to, to, mentally and emotionally process everything that they've gone through to get to this point, as well as everything we're just telling them. So I think that as far as treatment planning, just really understanding where they're coming from, or at least showing them that you're trying to understand and that you're trying to put in place the things that they need to achieve optimal health, because optimal health is not just get rid of that fibroid. Optimal health is how do you feel good? How do you now interact in your relationships? And how has this affected your sexuality, your intimate relationships, your relationships with all the people around you when you can't function and you have to be in bed for days on end or hours on end, whatever that looks like, right? All of that part is part of your optimal health. And so taking out the fibroid and going, you're good, right, is not actually helping. Absolutely. So lastly, when addressing patient fears and concerns, I think another under-discussed topic is talking with patients about concerns related to fertility and sexuality. I know, Ms. McKenzie, you kind of touched a little bit on that, but we want to talk a little bit more in details about this, which is really an exceptionally important factor when selecting medication versus surgical approach. So as a provider, uh, Ms. McKenzie, uh, do you have any insight to offer the audience when managing sexuality and fertility with your patients? Yeah, I, I I see this as like uh, OSHA guidelines, like like it's it's for everybody. So everybody who comes through the door doesn't matter if they have known fibroids or not, right? We ask about every annual. We ask about you know what questions do you have about sexuality because nobody also wants to have a problem, right? So if we ask questions such as do you have any problems or any concerns you want to talk about about your sexuality, then you know it feels a little scarier. To people so but all of us have questions right because we all had the same wonderful sex ed growing up and so we've all got we're all left with adult questions about what does sexuality mean or why does this hurt or why does this happen this way or how much time does that take so there's so many questions that are swirling around so if we just pose it ubiquitously to say you know many of my patients have questions about their sexuality about lubrication orgasm libido pelvic pain with intercourse pain with orgasm anything like that First of all, they're going to go, whoa, my medical provider just said the O word. And then they're going to sit back and go, oh, that means I can ask these questions, right? And so so presenting it as many people have these types of questions, is this anything you'd like to discuss versus do you have any problems with your sexuality, right? Opens up more of an, an option. And you can, it's scary sometimes to open up those options because maybe you don't know all the answers about like how to address it when they say I've got this concern, but then you can also go in prepared and say, there are people who do this work and I hear what you're saying. That's really important. Let me put you in touch with someone. Just takes a second. 
So fertility as well, you know, do you have plans to use your uterus for carrying a pregnancy? Are you unsure? Do you not know? Um, do you know for sure, but you want it later? Like you can lay out all these options and say, okay, this can help us kind of gear some of our shorter and our longer term goals based on knowing what you would, what you would prefer that happens with your uterus in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Ms. Valperon, uh, as a patient advocate, what insight do you have to add about patient fertility and sexuality when providers are working with the patient? Well, I, I think it goes to a lot of what we've already been, been discussing today. Once again, this has been, been a personal um, journey of mine. Um, you know, the fertility uh, aspect of it can can be a whole nother layer of uh, mental health anguish, uh, pain, um, anxiety, because once again, it is thinking about what you thought your life would be. And now, you know, what a clinician is telling you that potentially it, it could be, which is not what you thought it would be. Um, so there, there's a lot of emotion there and a lot of um, uh, thought around adding and making the situation around uterine fibroids more complex. So once again, I think not every gynecologist needs to be, you know, a reproductive endocrinologist and and a mental health professional, but it's what we've been talking about this entire discussion, which is having the awareness. And I think that is what makes um, a stellar clinician, uh, someone who has the awareness that they are a physician, they have an expertise, but they don't have an expertise on everything. And the way I am best serving my patient is by referring them, is by mentioning that, hey, I just noticed that you may be feeling this type of way, um, Here, here's a, another contact. It's the support and knowing that your doctor has recognized that there could be other things that are troubling you other than just doing their job of getting the information to you. A lot of times when they're getting the information, there's no way for us to synthesize it because of the things I talked about earlier, information overload, cultural competency, like all of those things that prohibit us from making a good decision. So when we think about fertility, it's another thing that the clinicians have to make sure that they are aware that this potentially could be um, the desire of your patient. Now, let's be clear, not all patients, not all uh, all patients who have fibroids and, and are presented with options necessarily uh, want to, to be a mother. So I love the way Ms. McKenzie, you know, phrased that question of, you know, is, is this what you want your uterus for? Um, but, but once again, we cannot not have the conversation and we cannot not um, mention that, you know, fibroids can potentially impact um, a certain outcome that you want. So once again, as the patient, we need to empower them that they are the CEO of your body, of their bodies. And we, in partnership, um, I, as a clinician, am coming to you with my expertise, you as the patient, uh, consumer, individual, however we want to label them, are coming um, with your level of expertise as well. I always say that there's so much data in a patient's lived experience. 
And I come fully empowered with that every time I go to the doctor. No, I'm not a clinician, so I don't know all of the the lingo and the terminology, um, but I do know my body. I do know what I experienced during my last period. I do know how bad the pain was, and I can write that down in a journal. I can bring a friend with me to the clinician's office so that we are able to make sure that my lived experience is getting out the best way that it can and being verbalized the best way it can so that together we can make strong decisions um, and, and ultimately get to what I want my outcome to be. Absolutely. Thank you again, Ms. Valpran, for this insight. So before closing up the discussion uh, on working with patients through the treatment planning process, I think it's really important clinicians consider the context when recommending treatments. And uh, you will be now uh, looking at a couple of slides that really address the issue of structural racism, disparity, and social determinants of health in practice for uterine fibroids. And this is really an important topic. Ms. Valbrand, you touched a little bit on that earlier uh, about the perception of pain. I mean, ironically, uh, uterine fibroids are way more common in women of color, about four times more in African-American women compared to European-American, and, and about two and a half times more in Hispanic-American, again, compared to European-American women. So even with this higher prevalence, there is that um, dismissal of pain by some providers in certain ethnic groups, uh, minimizing the symptoms or the perception of symptoms and so on, which is really, really unfortunate, especially that this group is the highest affected by this disease. So I would really encourage all of us to pay more attention to that. Uh, and uh, there are some data, uh, and you will see that on the slides and, and also in other uh, aspects of this uh, podcast series, that showing that uh, African-American women or Black women with fibroids actually would prefer non-surgical options uh, first before going to surgery. And when they were asked what they were offered by their provider, it was the other way around that they were offered surgery more than uh, uh, white women or, or European-American women with fibroids. And of course, the usual kind of potential explanation is uh, black women have more severe disease or more advanced disease. And in general, that's uh, unfortunately true. The disease starts early and advance faster in black women. But even when you do those kind of statistical techniques to, to remove all of these factors and compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges, it was still there that black women were offered surgery more than uh, uh, white women. So there's definitely a lot more work to do on, on that aspect. Uh, and if you want more insight uh, into the impact of uterine fibroid, the audience uh, can access our program titled uh, Empathizing Through Understanding the Impact of Uterine Fibroid, where we address these issues in some more details. I also want to sum up uh, some of the key points uh, of incorporating shared decision-making we made today in our discussion, and you will see that on the slide there uh, that is showing at this point. And really, uh, uh, those uh, three green uh, bubbles there really summarize this wonderful discussion we had today. Offer validation, express empathy, and respect patient values. Um, and, and also, I want to emphasize again that, uh, like any other disease, when we teach our medical students and fellows, 
we start with simple process prevention, primary, secondary prevention. Then if the disease has advanced enough, then we try uh, medical or non-surgical options and really uh, surgery should be the last resort. I think it's time to bring this paradigm back to fibroid, which unfortunately uh, has not been used in fibroid for many years. Uh, so I would also like to summarize today's discussion by walking through our SMART goals, which are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That's the word SMART, where it came from. This is what I hope uh, you have uh, taken away from this uh, presentation and this wonderful discussion we had in the last half an hour or so to apply in your practice. Number one, identify educational gaps in the management of fetal and fibroids. Two, integrate techniques to alleviate patient fears and address educational gaps in the management of fetal and fibroids. Three, identify the impact of structural racism, disparity, social determinants of health in patients with uterine fibroid. And for uh, incorporate principles of shared decision-making into the care of patients with uterine fibroid. I would encourage everyone to visit the CMEO Virtual Education Hub, uh, which provides free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients on uterine fibroids, including the other programs in this series. The CMAO snack is one of a four-part series that is a continuous initiative to reinforce personalized care for uterine fibroids, update practices, and improve patients' outcomes. We hope that you will take advantage and practice and participate in all of the activities into the series. Uh, the choice uh, to format the activity as a series has been made to deliver key points in shortened and time-sensitive format for the professional learner. In addition, by delivering contents in a series, you, the audience, have the opportunity to hear from multiple key opinion leaders in this space. So please be sure to access all of the programs to optimize learning. The other topics we uh, will be covering include guiding the clinical management of uterine fibroids, looking at the HPO, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access, and the estrogen threshold hypothesis in relation to a novel treatment for uterine fibroids and empathizing uh, through understanding the impact of uterine fibroids. I want to really thank Ms. McKinsey for teaching us so much today and for such a great conversation. I hope our audience have learned a lot about enhancing the value of choice for, for the clinical management of uterine fibroids through shared decision-making. Uh, thank you, Ms. McKinsey. Thank you. Thank you for having me for this very, very important topic. The shared decision making is the way we can implement good health for our patients. It's the foundation of everything. So I appreciate this. Thank you so much. I would definitely also like to thank uh, Ms. Valbrun for teaching us so much today as well. I hope our audience have learned a lot about the patient perspective and the needs for advocacy surrounding uterine fibroids and hope they will access the great work that uh, she and the White Dress Project are doing. Thank you, Ms. Valbrun. Thank you so much, Dr. Ahundi, and, and thank you for always ensuring that the patient voice is here. Um, it, it's really appreciated um, to be able to, to converse with clinicians and share our perspective. Thank you so much.